0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Dr Sivabalan Supaya is a remarkable figure. He has served as a police officer with the Royal Malaysian Police for more than 19 years now. In 2022, he was selected to be part of UNPOL, which is United Nations Police, and has gone on peacekeeping missions on the ground in South Sudan. There, he earned the title of Peacekeeper of the Day by the United Nations Department of Peacekeeping Operations. Dr Siva Balan is a Hubert Humphrey Fellow and was recently awarded the Fulbright Malaysia Alumni Impact Award at the Macy, which is the Malaysian-American Commission on Educational Exchange, their Homecoming Gala 2023. Dr Siva joins me on the show right now. Welcome to the show, Dr Siva. How are you?
1: Very good afternoon, Desharan. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honour to be here and uh, it's been a pleasant time and hope to have a good day with you. It's a great honour to have you on the show with
0: me, Dr Siva. So, let's just get to know you first. Tell me about yourself and why you decided to become a police officer.
1: Uh, I come from a very humble family uh, background. So, Three generation of migration and just continuing my family tradition to serve in the civil service. So my background is engineering. I served right after my graduation in 2002. I worked as an engineer, an equipment engineer. But two years along the line, I just decided that I should go into the civil service to continue the family tradition. And uh, I'm the first one in the family or the entire family tree to join the police service. And I love the job.
0: So that's very interesting. So you are an engineer and something um, you know, propelled you to join the civil service and continue your family tradition. Why was that important to you and of all the various areas in civil service, why
1: police? Uh, it's a very interesting question which many have asked me. If you ask what was my ambition, I would say I wanted to be a medical doctor. But unfortunately, during that time, uh, coming from a you know family of, of a middle class, it's not easy to get a medical degree if you don't go through the best of the grade. I did my Form 6 like any other candidate. We tried to do the best. When you miss the cut... To be the most excellent student, we try to take the next option. So at that time, in the 1990s, we don't have much options. Or you will be burdening your parents. So this is the option we always say. We should not burden our parents. So what is the next option? So I, did, I knew that I would make a cut for engineering. So I took the next best option, which was electrical engineer. So I did my degree in UPM uh, in 1998. Uh, as an electrical engineer, continue the line of duty. And then upon graduation, I got my job, my first job in NEC semiconductor in Tolopanglimagarang. But during this time, my, uh, my dad, he had a stroke. So situation changed. And working in the industry will not give you time to take care of them. So I know civil service, it's demanding, there's discipline, but you still have some time for your family. So I started looking at options, and I said the best I could do for the both option, from my uh, profession point of view, together for my commitment as a family uh, to attend to my parents. So I tried working into civil service. I applied several positions, but in line with my qualification, which was engineering. So it wasn't police, actually. I applied for few, uh, mm. the PTDs. Uh, I went to the Air Force to join as an electrical engineer, and that's that's the point when the Air Force wasn't having an entry, and they advised me to join the police. Right. So that's how I ended up in this line.
0: Talk to me a little bit more about your family. Um, how did they shape you? Um, growing up, um, especially because you said you know you come from a middle class, um, you know, family. Um, not someone with incredible privilege or anything like that. Talk to me about what it was like um, growing up. Um, you know, what was your life like? What was your
1: schooling like? Mm, I had a very, uh, uh, when I say humble background, um, you know, my uh, my grandparents are the first migrant from India. That right. was about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably my father's father was around, he'll be about 130 years now. So um he was a gardener and my mother's father was a cook in the hospital and we hailed from the town of Klang and I'm a Klang boy. So my parents, when it comes to my parents, they also continued the training. Both was working in this you know, the civil service and then continued with my parents who also my father was a technician in the telecoms at that time, my mom was a type typist with the report authority. So we we didn't have hardship, but we had limited Options, you know, uh, I have three three of us in the family. I have an older sister. I'm the second, and then I have a younger brother. And we are all we always grow in a life that we should not burden our parents. Of course, our parents have given the best for us, and that makes us what we are today. And that challenge in the life that actually defined what we are today. So what? Time have changed where parents today think that we have everything and we should give the best and the most comfortable environment for ch- children. But actually, indirectly, it deprives them from challenges. So when you don't go through challenges in life, you will not be resilient with the demanding challenges which want to happen. So that is a dilemma today. So whoever I am today is because of my parents. So what they have taught, what my grandparents have preached, education, education, good values, attitude, integrity. So we always lived in these values. So you come from,
0: you know, humble beginnings, um, you know, like you said, a clang boy growing up um, and then, you know, you went through life, your career and all of that and Now this humble boy from Klang is a Fulbright Impact Award winner. Tell me about this award and what it means to you and what did your family say when you received this award?
1: When the uh, Fulbright Award nominees came, so I'm part of the uh, Hubert Humphrey Alumni Uh, And I was still in South Sudan serving in the peacekeeping mission. And the the elders, I will say the elders, because we have a lot of prominent uh, Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey, alumni from I'll just name few. That was Sri Mustafa Muhammad is the one of the prime, uh, the pioneers in who received this award, and many distinguished leaders along there. And they said, "Siva, you should go for it." So when they nominated me, the president, to uh, and said, "Siva, try." So I just thought, "Yeah, we should represent Humphrey." So I did my best because at least there will be a representative from Humphrey. Uh, so, when I was in South Sudan, I, I followed the procedure, submitted on behalf of the Humphrey to represent the Humphrey because many would be aware of the Fulbright programs where probably there are a lot of graduates, but not many is aware of the professional part of this uh, f- uh, the one of these fellowships, which is the uh, uh, it is a very prestigious uh, Hubert Humphrey Fellowship Award. Uh, it has been there for uh, many years, but it's not for graduates. It is a professional awardee. Right. So being in that circle and that motivated, they motivated these elders, which I say the great personalities in the Humphrey told me. I just took the advice, but never expected to be. I just believe that uh, this award doesn't belong to me. I mm-hmm. somehow I feel that I feel small among the many, many uh, uh, candidates uh, you know, which have been conceded. Uh, Because some of their contributions are a lot more. And everyone have done this for many years. And probably when I stand beside them, I look very small. But when I received it, I was really... It was an honour. You know, never never once uh, I would have dreamt being in this position. And never once I would have dreamt receiving this award when I'm still away from the family and the country. So... Definitely, it brought some pride for the family because uh, we always thought, uh, you know, coming in from a middle class, we don't look for fame. We don't look for pride. We we continue in a very peaceful environment and we hope to maintain in that way. And the reason I'm here is also because the motivation and the support given by the rest of the Humphrey and the Fulbright. So when you receive award, it is not about me. It is about the team behind you. So the award actually goes to all. I think you are indeed a, a very humble person even
0: right now. Before we started recording, you even had this this request where you said, can we don't talk much about me and talk about the program more, uh, which I'm go- respectfully going to decline that, right? Because I think you're a remarkable person, a very interesting, that I'd like to get to know more. And one of these remarkable things that you have done is um, you've been selected to be part of the United uh, Nations Police, a uh, UN poll. Talk to me about that. Um, How did this come about, Um, um, this UN peacekeeping mission, getting selected to be part of UN poll?
1: Talk to me about how that part of it came about. Uh, Being part of uh, United Nations Police, uh This is a peacekeeping mission. Mm -hmm. So probably many are not aware outside the circle of military or police, they are not. So the first thing they did, the word peacekeeping means that we are there to represent the United Nations. And all contributing countries who are part of the members of the United Nations will do their part to contribute in the uh, perseverance of peace in a country or in an area of conflict. But I must say, this is post-conflict. I mean, the war is over, and then that's where we are there. But these countries need our assistance. So they rope in all this expertise. So when I went there as a police advisor, so our role is to be an advisor, to build their capacity. That means they do have their local police, but now they are just learning from others. So we try to advise on the practices. But we don't interfere in the local laws and we will just do the writing so that they don't breach any human rights. How the process of getting in and why it motivated me, that's another question. Uh, I've been in this service for 19 years. I have served several departments and uh, various uh, positions which requires different responsibilities. And I always believe that we must take a step extra to gain new experience. And this is one opportunity when when the department advertised uh, expression of interest for UN peacekeeping police, I just put in and I was like in my, I'm in my middle of mid-40s. And it's a great challenge because going into a area of conflict is a different experience. We have attended interviews, we have given training in different, but most of these countries are peaceful countries. This is where our country is an opportunity for me to do something for humanity because it's always been close to me and close to my heart. So when I went there, I took the challenge, but getting, uh, putting in an expression is not a lot. There is There is selection processes, and these selection processes are done by officers from the United Nations. So you need to meet certain criteria, and then from the selection processes you need to be selected by them based on your skill set because you will be selected because of the need to guide the people down there so these are the processes in brief but uh, in general we still have uh, we went for the selection in the early of 2022 just right after the process of COVID but with many uh, COVID uh, procedures are in place so there were 150 candidates, from 150, 113 made it, so which we received the license to be a UN police for two years. So from the 113, the the first batch was selected by the uh, New York, which was 10 police officers, and I was given the honor to be the contingent commander of Malaysia.
0: So why
1: did you do this? And and, and I guess I'm asking this
0: because there are a lot of police officers, um, not many have the desire or, or, the, or, the, or the motivation to become, you know, or, or to try and sign up to become a United Nations police, um, to, to work with the UN, to work in, in war-torn areas or, or conflict-stricken areas and, and things like that. You said that humanity has always been close to your heart. This is um, in line with what's
1: important to you. Where does that come from? As I say, your background shape a lot of things in what is in one's mind. So we always say that if you want the plant to grow well, you feed the right amount of water with the right amount of nutrient. That is the same thing as what is in me. So my parents or my grandparents have always indoctrinated me to live in peace, in harmony, r- mutual respect for others, and ability to adapt yourself in different cultures. So when you grow up in this environment, you grow up with certain principles in life, and then you like to challenge this, whether we have done this in this country, we have lived 40 years, what we have to do for the other part of the world, can we do something for them? So, and this is the values we bring from home and that actually motivated. But of course, there are a lot of sacrifices and I wouldn't be able to do this without the sacrifices from the family. I need the blessings of my parents. I need blessings of my wife and children. And my... So this is where the family comes into you and only when the family supports your family and you be able to take this decision. So I was very confident, and I always had the support from my external family, which from my uncles, my cousins, not just my core family, because they were taking care of my family, and that allows me to do something for the country.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Sivabalan Supaya, who's an advisor at the United Nations Police. We will continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Darshan Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Siva Balan-Supaya, who's an advisor at the United Nations police. So, Dr. Siva, um, talk to me about the experience going on a new United Nations peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. What was that experience like?
1: The journey... Before a peacekeeping mission, uh, we have many seniors who have prior to our departure. Uh, the process is another experience, but now we're getting there into the mission is another experience. So, if someone comes and tells, I have experience in five different missions, the mission, each mission actually carries different experience. Mm-hmm. So, it is completely different because the nature of the conflict, the nature of the people, the dynamic of the you know, the local needs. So when I went to South Sudan, and a little bit background about South Sudan, because probably many were not aware. Mm-hmm. South Sudan were part of Sudan. The Sudan was one of the biggest country in African continent. In 2011, they attained their independence. So South Sudan attained independence from Sudan. So there's two countries today. One is Sudan, and one is South Sudan. South Sudan is the youngest country in the world. So they had they gained their independence in 2011 from Sudan, and majority of the population are Christians. Mm-hmm. So in Sudan, the population is Muslim. But people probably think that it is an issue of uh, religion that actually separated these two countries. It was never an issue of religion. It is about the dynamics of growth in this country. So most of the wealth was in the south, but the development was taking place in the north. So oh, right. that's where the conflict started. So they wanted their autonomy, which was fair because they have oil, they have a lot of minerals, they have diamonds. And, but the growth is not there. Mm. And the people were living backward. And the country is very big. South Sudan, the population is only 11 million only. So these are the issues back then. But after independent in 2011, things change because though they are all Christians, we always think, oh, things probably will be right. Then these things of tribal, so they have a very strong clannish issues. And these clan issues, and because they are probably backward and probably will say that They are just growing. Some part have not seen real civilization. So this kind of hardship have made them to fight for survival. So clannish power, autonomy start coming in. So this country is struggling to build. But things have improved now. They don't really have big war. They still have tribal conflict. So when I I arrived there uh, last year, October 11th, we flew here. On October 10th, 2022, we arrived there after almost 24 hours of journey. And we have six hours of time zone. When I was there, the first thing which challenged you is the condition. You still see an airport where you can see goats running on the trackways. Right. And these are the situation that you see people moving around in vehicles with bazookas and, um, you know, firearms. These are the situation. You see right. the police, and you don't see anything like that. We still submachine gun and all, and the most thing, the condition, the living condition, temperature was almost touching thirty six degrees. It the rain season is just coming to an end, so they when they and the dry season about to start in October, and we were when we arrived, UN have a very good. Set up. They have a camp they call Tomping and then they have another camp which is about 40, 12 kilometers away, which is the UN house. So when we arrived, we have our immediately the next day they start off with an induction program and we all, uh, we uh, we were placed in pre-fabricated uh, accommodation. When you talk about prefabricated accommodations, they are not complete unique. They're small boxes with uh, maybe three, four police personnel sharing. And a small and the toilets don't even have a door. So these are the things, the first thing will shock you. You're coming from a country like Malaysia and going into a condition like this. But over time, after one month, you will settle because when you come there with the curfew hours in place with the food condition uh, and the heat and living in you know, a adult man living sharing with other people and sometimes you share with people of different countries and mostly from african because most of them are this is a cultural shock but as is it what the principles of united nation their core values is professionalism respect and uh, respect for diversity and integrity. so this is the core values of United Nations because the likelihood of you sharing with a fellow Malaysian is really one percent. the the situation is you will be sharing mostly with people officers from South uh, from African continent, any part of the world. So in Anmis, Anmis is the abbreviation for United Nations peacekeeping in South Sudan and we have, Around 600 police officers from 60 different countries.
0: Wow. It really sounds like such an experience. What does a peacekeeping mission entail? What exactly is the work that you did
1: there? Peacekeeping. What is peacekeeping? Peacekeeping is a resolution taken by the UN Security Council so there's two types of assembly usually we here is the united Nations general assembly but there is also another assembly which is the security council so when there is a post conflict and the country needs support for uh, you know restabilization revitalization of their peace agreement that is, which is in South Sudan. So the United Nations Security Council will come out with a resolution, and every year the resolution changes. And when you talk about resolution, that is a mandate. A mandate is what a peacekeeper is supposed to execute in the mission, and each mandate are different. So for the case of South Sudan, the, the mandate, there were four mandates. Mm-hmm. The first one was protection of civilians. Two, Two, for peacekeepers, we must be able to assist humanitarian assistance. That is number two. Number three is actually to prevent uh, human rights violation. And uh, the last one actually uh, to assist in the revitalization of their peace agreement. That means they had a peace agreement, first one, and then it broke off in 2016. They had to revitalize and revitalize so peacekeepers we have militaries and police and we are there to support the government of the day to revitalise the peace agreement. So that is our role. And our mandate we work, our function actually goes along with the mandate. So the mandate determines what the peacekeepers are supposed to do so
0: that's very interesting right because um like you said it's uh it's not just um you one person there's so many people from all over the world what are they looking for specifically like from you as a malaysian from um, a different person from a different uh, part of the world someone from africa someone from india are they looking for different perspectives, um what is it uh, are they looking for in terms of that?
1: Okay, coming from different countries brings different cultural belief. Mm. So imagine working in an office with probably 10 different nationalities. Right. So what are expected from these peacekeepers are the peacekeepers are among the best uh, from the selection. That's supposed to be there. That's why they scrutinize. It's not that it just expression of interest is enough for one to be selected. Right. They will be scrutinized even in New York and even in the mission, looking based on the skill set they have. So when we talk, we try, what are the values we bring when you come as a, and you work from as a team? We try to show the people in South Sudan or any piece here, when we come from different culture, religion, background different communication set. We can work as a team. Why not you who come from the same? So we try to carry the flag of United Nation because United Nation is supported by all the members of the uh, United Nation. So when we are there, we carry the flag of United Nation and carry the flag of our contributing country. So I was very proud to carry my flag all the time.
0: That's really (laughs) wonderful. So...
1: What did you learn um, throughout your
0: your experience there, especially from the people of South Sudan, but also from your fellow um, um, colleagues from other countries?
1: There's a lot of learning processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Malaysia, uh, we have moved from independence after the sixty nine uh, racial riot. Uh, this country has been very peaceful, and we were blessed with all this growth. But appreciation, probably the appreciation from the younger generation is not there because they have not really seen the hardship. They have right. always seen the set of the... So when you go to a country like Africa and a country which is... You really feel that there are so many bright children, the bright people down there who have just no opportunity. So I used to see these local South Sudanese. Uh, then, you know, how they, they just looking for some materials to read so you know they have no lights they have no they they used to take shower like 3 days once they they used to sit under the share the cam lights where you know around the perimeter camp they have lights and they also there are towns and of course i was in the capital and there are towns and lightings but you know when the country is concerned not the facilities not across. and you can see the determination by them to improve themselves which we don't see from our younger generation here in today. We don't appreciate what we have, what been given to us. So you, you think see, we take things for granted? I won't say that we take things for granted. It's just that it, there wasn't a situation that we have to... The, so the younger generation never went through this kind of experience. So so when COVID came in just like that, so they were not ready. So they always think, I'll leave for today and I don't need saving. Why we should keep for the next generation? But it never came. Who thought about COVID? And when COVID came, many of them lost their job, lost their savings. And sometimes this is a reminder that things can always take a turn and things will not. So in South Sudan, the struggle is always there. And this struggle is going to make them stronger because they come from real hardship. They eat once a day. And not necessary. And how they, I used to ask them, how do you keep yourself from this hunger? They drink, they have a big drum of water and they start drinking water to just keep them out of the hunger. So we don't appreciate. We are all the time eating. Uh, There's restaurant 24 hours, 7. We never stop eating. We never stop celebrating. But people there, for them, a day, a meal is a celebration. So this kind of things we learn in life to appreciate. Other than that, I see this is how our grandparents probably been many, many years ago, or our general forefathers would have been. And this is today we are gifted because of what all their sacrifices they have done. So the South Sudan, from us, what they take, they, they look at us as a guidance. They look at us as a mentor. And being a Malaysian, I was very proud because our flag is stood really tall among all the countries because Petronas have actually done a lot of work in uh, CSR. They've been in South Sudan or Sudan actually for 30 over years and they have done a lot of CSR. They have educated, given opportunity for the South Sudanese to enrich themselves. So when I was there, the flag protects me. You know, when they say, oh, you are from Malaysia, Malaysia. So... Everybody say, hey, how come they are so comfortable with you? It's because of the flag. When they see we Malaysians, we are very tolerable and we stood very high. Mm. I was proud because uh, I went with a group of 10 officers, including myself. We had seven males, three females, uh, five Indians, origin and five Malays. We Malaysians, the identity of Malaysia is not about Indian or Malay or any different. We come as a country who are, Peaceful. We always adapt. We are humble, and this is the identity of Malaysia. So the the name of the country actually speaks a lot. How did it feel um, to be nominated as peacekeeper of the
0: day by the United Nations? Because this is a huge thing. Um, You know, it's it's one thing to get selected. It's another to get nominated to be the peacekeeper of the day by UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations in 2023. Talk to me about what, um, your, how did this come about, um, and
1: how did it, how do you feel about it? Uh, uh, this really took me by surprise too, actually. Um, I joined them uh, in October and during this time when they, it was uh, this peacekeeper of the day was actually an annual kind of thing. And they do in conjunction of UN International UN Peacekeeper Day, which falls on every 29th May uh, of its an annual affair. Mm-hmm. So what happens is every there's about 12, uh, I think, active peacekeeping around the world and every peacekeeping uh uh, requested to submit candidates uh, for their, uh, the, the, the candidates which they feel that have contributed have done a lot of impact in their mission. So I was about it was only just about eight months of my tour there, and um, and I was uh, I was one of five who were shortlisted by the unmissed leadership, the police leadership sent our can our by data to New York, and New York published it as a peacekeeper of the day. Which really took me for surprise because I felt I was just doing my job. And uh, that's what they said, you were doing your job. But that's what uh, the professionalism talks because what is important is the uh, our presence in the mission. Because when I went there, I, I told myself, it's usually it's a one year tour. And then sometimes we go for extension six months, depends on the country policy. So when I went there I said, I'm going to be here for one year because I can't leave my family for too long. I have young children and I have to go back to my organization which is the Royal Malaysia Police. But my days are there three hundred sixty five days and I should give my best for my mission days. so that's what I did I, I I I I knew what was my objective. I'm there to do something for the people so and my time is only three hundred sixty five days that exclude uh, have not even excluded our compensatory time off so I, I was working like even Saturday Sundays because we are there to work so not to say to stretch myself but we try to uh, try to do what we are supposed to do and you just take extra sometimes to meet the locals talk to them share to them so motivate them that to bring awareness, education. I'm a big fan of education, and uh, education enlightens people. And this is where I, when I look at a young South Sudanese sitting under the tree, uh, not knowing they are alive, not knowing, just call them, just say, uh, when they look at you as a mentor, and you can actually influence them. Say, education, education, and education. <laughs>
0: All right, Dr. Sival, before we wrap this conversation up, would you have
1: a final message for us? Humanity is a testament of mankind. To live peaceful is everybody's rights. So we should learn to live and respect each other. And the only way is to educate and enlighten yourself with wisdom. Thank you for the time and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr Siva. That was Dr
0: Siva Balan Supaya who's an advisor at the United Nations Police. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Live and Learn BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind,